I know Mitch did a great job in chapter 9, and um, but I've got to get a little bit into chapter 9 because I need a running start in chapter 10. You know, so we're going we're, we're gonna to go back there a, just a little bit in order to get a running start. And um, I'll, I'll have you help me do that. Uh-oh, we're not advancing this way. Something over here wants this to go away. All right. Computer's trying to update. That's not what we want. So if I could only give you one word, there's two possible answers to this, but you only have one word in your answer, okay? One word to use to sum up everything about the physical structure of the tabernacle, or later on the temple, but specifically the tabernacle is used here, and all the sacrifices that were all ordained by the first covenant. What one word would you use? Perfect. Um, not the word I'm looking for. Yes, that would do it. But keep going. It's okay. Shadow. Shadow is one of those words. Excellent. What's the other word? Temporary. Temporary. Uh, temporary is not the word that Hebrews 8.5 uses. It uses one other word. A copy. Copies of or shadows. And, and you're, I could be wrong because I've been looking at all the different translations. This is the New King James. But, but this word shadow or a copy is used about everything that had to do with the Jewish system of sacrifices and priests and worshiping God and all those things. Okay, so if one of those words is there, what is being copied or what is casting a shadow? And the Hebrew writer uses that word, Michelle. The real heaven. The real heaven. The real thing. Mm -hmm. And so if we see a shadow of something here on earth, have we actually seen that thing? I mean, if, if you're out with, with Stan that, that, that in, and you're camping, the sun's going down and Stan's standing the right way, you can see a 20-foot tall man. Stan's a tall man. It's not that tall, right? The shadow's not. Or the song, it's a different way. It's only two feet. It's a shadow. It's a projection. It's not the real thing. The same with a copy. If somebody hands you a copy of the deed to your car and, you, and, and the title to your car and you go to sell your car, can you turn in the copy? No, you got to have the real thing, the real bona fide. And so because the Hebrew writer uses this word over and over again about the old law and about this, the shadow or the copy of the things, this heavenly service in the presence of God is what they should have been desiring and it's what we should desire. And why would we want a copy of that when we can have the real thing? And so that's really... The, uh, the issue that, that he's trying to bring forward to them, particularly because they want to go back to Judaism to relieve the persecution pressure that they're feeling because they're different as Christians in, in doing that. Now, there's an emerging theme that's, that, that emerged and uh, really started in chapter 7 and then 8 and then chapter 9 hits this a couple times. And it's going to be important as we get into chapter 10. And... I'd like for, uh, let's see, who's got, um, Andy, can you read uh, chapter 9, verse 9? <clears throat> it says, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Okay, so what's the pro what problem did animal sacrifices not solve, according to that verse? The conscience, okay? The conscience. Now, 
us to think about this a little bit here because I, this, is, this is a really important concept in Hebrews. And you might hear a lesson on this one day in the future because I think there's, um, this is one I'm thinking about here. The role of the conscience. Neither you nor I will ever understand what it was like to be a Jew living under the Jewish system of sacrifices. In fact, Jews today don't understand it. They don't live under that system. But the Hebrew writer makes some claims here about that these sacrifices of bulls and goats do not solve the problem of a clean conscience. So why would that be? I mean, weren't they doing what God asked them to do when they sacrificed the bull or goat? Well, probably because they looked at more of a chore or a task than, yeah, maybe, a, than a desire to repent. Some may have, but what about the ones who actually genuinely were bringing that service to God? We have lots of records of people who were genuinely serving God with that. What might have been the problem? Well, let, let's think about this a second. In this picture here, picture I was privileged to trip with my dad to take in Africa, kind of hard to see it. There are both bulls and goats in that picture. This is a Maasai village, okay? And they have bulls and goats. You'll see where I'm going with this in just a second. The Maasai people who live here, they're, they're one of their huts on the side, and those, those bushes you see around it, those are actually briars, like you would find out here in our desert. They build those briars around their, their towns to keep the lions from coming in and stealing their cattle. The reason is, is because this is the wealth of this village standing right here. Everything about what this village has is standing on those four hooves of goats and those four hooves of cows, okay? Now, when talking to those people, we ask, well, how much is a, is a cow worth? And someone said, well, 20 cows are worth a life. If I trade, if I have a daughter and I marry her off to somebody, I can get 20 cows for her. Okay, well, what's that worth in money? Each cow about $200. Each goat about $40. Okay? If you needed to buy something else, you took your bulls and goats. There's your cows. There's your goats in the foreground. You can see what this is. It's a Saturday marketplace. You might drive a cow to marketplace and sell it for some sort of spending money. And then you can go to one of these booths, and there's a huge field up here, set up and do trade with that. And so you, can, you might be able to get clothes or get some other things that you needed, and walk back to your village. So this is money where we're at. We like to think about folding money. Most of my money is just some electronic thing in a bank that I, don't even, I never even see what the money is. I'm not even sure it's really there. They, would, they probably would think I was silly for, for never actually seeing the money I was paid with. But they see their money. It's right here. Okay? Now, pretend... This is your wealth, which it kind of was for the Jews as well. And you were asked by God to sacrifice one of these cows. What were you out if you were the Messiah people to sacrifice a cow? $20. $200. Now, here in America right now, cows are going for about $3,500 if they're full gone. So you'd be out $3,500 here. Okay, so if you were a murderer and you sacrificed a cow, did that cow really pay your debt? Well, God said to give the cow and it would cover your sins. What about if it was that one time a year where they took the cow into the holiest of holies and they sacrificed it there for the people and then they came out 
and the priest put his hand on the head of the goat and sent it out to the desert to take their sins away. So that was, that was one, you know, in this place, about $250 worth of cattle went away because of the sins of the entire nation of Israel. What might cross your mind if that was the case? If you were, if you were someone who really thought about yourself and what you had done, what, what, what would cross your mind in that It was case? cheap. They got off cheap. Yes. Depending on what I did, right? Yeah. You know, if, what about David who committed adultery and murdered somebody and lied to cover it up and did all that? The reality is, the sacrifices he would have offered after that for asking for forgiveness were exactly what God wanted. What does the Hebrew writer tell us was the problem in the Old Testament with sacrifices? Now, we don't know that because we don't live here, but maybe, I hope that this example you can understand it. What would be the problem with, okay, I've done the sacrifices God asked me to do. Would your conscience be clean or not? No. You were, you were right with God, so why would my conscience not be clean when I was right with God? But you still sin. Well, you know, you still, you, you still would sin again, but... Because the debt is greater than... The, the debt was so great compared to what was actually paid. Mm -hmm. You keep asking yourself... This isn't fair on my part. Am I really? Am I really forgiven? Mm -hmm. Might be something that came through your mind. Mm -hmm. Is this really enough? Doubts. Why do I have to do it again next year? Go ahead, Matt. Doubts. You're doubting. Yeah. The, doubting all kinds of doubts could be there, even though you knew you were doing God's will. I mean, listen. What were the sons of Eli like? You may remember that from Judges. They were horrible men. What were they? They were the priests offering these sacrifices. I wonder if this horrible guy that I see with prostitutes who's offering these sacrifices is really taking care of my... Now, we can read David and we can see in his Psalms that he understood he was forgiven and there was forgiveness. We talked about that the whole time. And yet the Hebrew writer says it did not clean the conscience. Even if you did the sacrifices year after year after year after year. And so... This problem of the conscience, let's go to, to, to verse 14. Yes, sir. Andy, you had your Bible open. Go ahead and read verse 14 for it as well. Okay, chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, what does the blood of Christ accomplish, according to the Hebrew writer? It purifies what? Conscience. It purges our conscience of dead works. What is, what is another word for uh, purging our conscience of dead work? Our conscience, not our conscience, our consciousness of dead works. What is another word for that? We have a good conscience, right? Mm -hmm. What's the difference in Christ's sacrifice and the bulls and goats on this debt paid? Which way, which, which, which way does, does, does the debt go this time? When Jesus paid the debt. God's debt. God's sacrifice. Absolutely. And how good so is that sacrifice? greater than anything we could give. It's not only greater than we can give. How great is it? I mean, it's perfect. He only had to do it one time. It's so great he only had to do it one time for all time. Absolutely. And it's per because it's perfect. You're exactly right, Michelle. It was a perfect sacrifice. And we're going to find out in chapter, 14, chapter 10, the first 14 verses, why it was perfect um, as a sacrifice. But think about it. The Son of God in the form of a man, sacrificed himself 
to cover up our sins. Is there any doubt that that's paid now? Whatever God required, if God said that, it leaves no doubt. Which is what's a shame sometimes when we as Christians have doubt when we look back on our lives and go, hold it, if we've obeyed Christ, there is no doubt. But I think the other piece of this is there was this implication there was clearly doubt in the minds of the Jewish people doing this service. And that that doubt persisted. And the reason it persisted is because those guys every year had to come do the sacrifice again. And we're going to see the argument that he makes here in, in chapter in, the, in these first four verses about that argument. So, um, you've read the first four verses uh, in, in your study here. So, this really is the final word he's going to give us on animal sacrifice to establish his point that Jesus is such a better sacrifice, he's such a better high priest, his tabernacle is such a better tabernacle because it's heaven, the sacrifice gets us, gets us to heaven, that we can have full assurance in Christ. There is no assurance in, in the old system for them. In fact, there's doubt and an unclean conscience if they, if they decide to go back. So what does he say here about this? First of all, What's his conclusion of these arguments in chapter 9 and 10? We can never with these sacrifices make those who approach perfect. So interestingly, they could be obeying God, but even the sacrifice God said to do of the bulls and goats did not make them perfect. In other words, it didn't clean their conscience. It did not actually forgive their sins. It didn't have the power to do that. So that's kind of conclusion number one. Last uh, chapter of uh, uh, verse four says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats would take away sin. It was never possible, and it's not going to be possible. They can go back to it and get away from their persecution. It ain't going to do them any good. And that's his point here. It is absolutely not possible that the bloods of bulls and goats would ever take away sin. It's not enough. It's just not enough in, in the eyes of God. We can actually move ahead. But, and here's this point here. If these sacrifices would have been effective, then they would have obtained the state of not having any more consciousness of their sins. Their conscience would have been clean. He's making an argument to people who understood this because they had actually practiced these sacrifices. And I believe they knew when he said this, you know, he's right. My conscience never was clean when I went and offered that turtle dove or when I offered that goat or that other thing that was there. You, in fact, he's saying, you should have known this because you know the effect of those sacrifices on you versus the effect of Jesus. And so, as he sums this whole section up, this is really his main point, that nothing about the old law is something we should ever go back to. It has no ability to actually accomplish the one thing that you need. And we often talk about that as salvation, and boy, that's it. That's exactly right. And that's, that's right to say salvation, redeem, sanctification. Those words are coming right out of the text here. But the other thing we need is clear conscience. And we've been sinners. And then Sometimes in the way the world defines sin, egregious sinners. You know, it's all egregious for God, but however you define that, when we have been sinners, we also need to walk away with clean conscience because that is the only way we'll find out as we study this, we can approach God. 
is to have a clear conscience. And there's only one way to get it. To know that Jesus' blood has purged us. Does that make sense? Is that the randings of a madman? Or does that, <laughs> that, that, that make sense? I have a question. Oh, yes. Here uh, in the lesson he said, uh, if bull and goat cannot take away sin, why did God ever command it? So that means that he knew that something better mm -hmm. Jesus would. He did. If, if you'll hold that, we're actually going to look at that. We're going to look at that next. We'll, we'll get some hints about that. But he did. He knew it was an imperfect system. He proposed it because he proposed something that was not perfect, but it, he proposed something that was a shadow. And and because he knew the future. He knew the future. Yes. He knew where he was pointing to. And, okay. and that's what, when we read when the fullness of time time to come, Christ came, born of a virgin. There was a there was a time when he wanted Christ to come. And before that time, this is this is what he worked. And I think one of the beautiful things about Hebrews as you study it, you get this sense of Hebrews really tells us the whole Old Testament was pointing at Jesus. If we just learn how to read it and understand it. And those verses he's pulled out like Psalm 95, Psalm 110, Jeremiah 31, we're going to talk about tonight. They're all things that while they were applicable in that time, they more strongly pointed to Jesus. And so he really was trying to point them so that when they when Jesus came, they recognized him. And that's the shame for the Jews is they didn't. They didn't when he came. Just real quick, I was thinking, uh, I guess today, that God shed his blood, in, as it were, in human form. And there is no higher thing or higher price that could be paid in the universe. There is nothing, right? Where there was before. Animal blood does not take away human uh, sins. It doesn't. And the only thing we could possibly want to offer is to sacrifice our own lives. And that didn't take away our sins, right? That would just be the penalty. We'd just suffer the penalty for it. So there was nothing that would allow us to not have the penalty for sin other than what, what God proposed here. And that's that really is the, is the core of the argument that the Hebrew writer is making. Jesus is better than everything that you could possibly imagine to try to be rectified to God. You have to stick with Jesus no matter what. Michelle? Doesn't Jesus' sacrifice make it possible for us to continue forward without reconnecting the sin? It, it absolutely does. And it, in fact, it's we won't take a lot about this, but when we sin after, after we've been converted, why are we not baptized again? Because of Jesus' sacrifice. Right. Jesus' sacrifice is there for us. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we have to stay close to Jesus. We understand. We have to confess our sins. If we can turn away, we've already talked about it. We will talk about it some more. A Christian can go back and lose their faith and turn away. However, the reality is, is that our, our baptism is not a sacrifice. It's not a ritual sort of thing like a sacrifice is. It is a, it's a statement of obedience to Jesus that mm -hmm. we believe you we trust you and we give ourselves to you, doesn't have to be offered over and over again. Well, it's, fact, a, it's a step. It, it, it is a step in a, in a bigger process. That's exactly right, Tommy. Unlike these sacrifices, they, what had to happen with them? Over and over and over again, because they weren't effective. When we're connected to Jesus, that's totally effective in, in, in being able to do that. So, Hebrews, uh, we'll move here fairly quickly. Hebrews 10, verses 5-9 through 9 points us toward Psalm, um, Psalm 46 through 8. And I hope you took a chance to study that. David wrote that psalm by inspiration, obviously. But the Hebrew author claims somebody else is speaking in that psalm. 
Who does Heber, Heber offer say, say speaking? Speak of Jesus. Jesus, not, is, not, is it speaking of Him or is Jesus speaking? He's speaking. Yeah, He's speaking, exactly. Jesus is speaking. So when, it's, when, when, when David said, um, when, he, when He came into the world, now hold, let's stop right there, verse 5. Who is the He when He came into the world? Who's that sound like? Jesus, right? When Jesus came into the world, who said? Jesus. Jesus said. And what did He say? Sacrifice and offering do not desire. You prepare the body for me. So God instituted animal sacrifices, yet what does this psalm say? David wrote, 1,500 years before this, what does the psalm say about sacrifices in verse 6? God had no pleasure in that. God had no pleasure in that. 1,500 years. How many years after that that Moses had been there? About 500 years in round numbers. No, 1,500 years till Jesus here, and yet David declares you had no pleasure in that. Well, no, this is Jesus talking. Jesus knew God had no pleasure in that. Why did he have no pleasure? Because, Jesus, because God knew they were not capable of, of, of actually taking care of the real problem of, the, of remission of sins. And so... How do we explain that God would, would, would... It's the reason that God would use a shadow or a copy of the very thing, that why the temple was a copy of heaven or a shadow of heaven. All the things we've talked about here. It's how God chose to point us and to lead us in that direction through them and, and, making, and making that happen. So um, beyond that, I'm going to invoke um, one of Mitch's favorite praises. Above my favorite, watch why God chose to do it that way. He could have chose to do it any other way he wanted to keep a shadow or a copy, but he chose to do it this way. And yet, he chose to leave something out, something missing that was not going to get filled until Christ came. And so, um, it's the it really is the interesting part of it. John? I was just going to ask you, are you going to answer that question if bulls and goats can take away sin, why did God command us to do it? Because I think I have an answer. Go for it. God wanted the people to understand that there was a penalty for sinning. There certainly was, and that blood was blood. There would blood would be shed. All those things pointed to Jesus. They were imperfect, but they they pointed that direction, right? They they established some principles that they would later need to, to recognize. So, I think that's why it's, it's called a shadow or a copy. It was meant to. It wasn't disconnected from the real thing, but it wasn't the real thing. And so that God chose to kind of make that. It have a model. For them to go through, so that when the real time came, they would recognize and understand understand that model. Okay. Verses seven and nine. How did Jesus, when Jesus came into the earth, and he, in a sense, this psalm is showing Jesus talking to God, and he presents himself. And in verse nine, what does he say to God? I have come to do your will. Have you thought about that? Did Jesus know he was going to be sacrificed? Shed his blood for remission before he before he the scene started? Absolutely. We talk about he fulfilled the Old Testament. Well, that was part of it. He lived a perfect life. Well, that was part of it. Actually, I would submit those weren't the hard parts of it. The hard part of it was knowing that in whatever way that that death that he suffered separated him from God, that that was going to happen. And he was going to willingly do that because he 
100% shared God's will of wanting to create a pathway for us to be able to, to be together with God in a relationship. Or if we use the words of Hebrews, what is, what's another word for being together with God in a relationship that we studied previously? Unity, but what's the Hebrews word? To be at rest. That he was going to provide the way for us to be at rest with God. And so Jesus came to do God's will. The Old Testament's pointing there 1,500 years before, before Jesus came. And then he makes this conclusion. By that, in other words, by the things that he did, that he came to offer himself to do God's will, the Hebrew writer says in, in, in chapter 10, verse 10, and this, this is one for us to remember. 10.10 should be easy to remember. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And there's that what we said before about why was Jesus sacrificed so perfect? It only had to be offered once. It was so great. It could not only cover our sins, we've talked about it, it could cover their sins. The faithful who had died under that old system, it could, it could take all of those sins. Every person who had striven to be in a relationship with God and obey God's will to the best of their abilities with faith had the opportunity to be sanctified by Jesus' offering one sacrifice. And that should have hit home with the Hebrews strong because I'm looking to go back to a system that has nothing like this. Jesus did this once for all. Now, you and I probably can't appreciate that as much as they did as far as the Jewish system and the sacrifices. But can we appreciate, should we appreciate it just as much as they did? Because wherever we came from, wherever our backgrounds were, whatever we thought or may even be thinking today is how we should serve God in, in doing that, what creeps into our lives? Sin creeps into our lives. Being ineffective creeps into our lives. A need for a need for God creeps creeps into our life. To know and understand that the blood of Jesus sanctified us. And what's what's one of the products of being sanctified? What should it be in our minds? A clear conscience. That no matter what we did, no matter where we were, we we are 100% absolutely sure because Jesus' blood was shed. God doesn't remember our sins anymore when we obeyed Him, and therefore they're gone. The consequences of them may not be gone, but the sins are gone. And we'd have no doubts about, the, about that fact. And so we are sanctified by the perfect sacrifice. And the Hebrew writer in, in, in these last the verses of the, the first half here sums it up, uh, and he's pulled some of the statements out. We said this over and over again. He's going to say it one last time. Repeated animal sacrifices can never take away sin. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Verse 12. Jesus sat down at God's hand after he did that. Talked about that over and over again. Jesus' enemies will be made his footstool. That's still coming. What's that language of in the old, in, in, for these people? When someone says, your enemies will be your footstool. What, what, what are we saying about? Someone who does what in war? Victorious. A victorious conqueror. Jesus, all Jesus' enemies will be conquered. Jesus' sacrifice perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
it wasn't just that Jesus sacrificed once and all forever. It's that we can be perfected forever. Imperfect humans as we are, we can be made perfect forever. Think about that one for a while. Verse 13 says, Jesus' enemies will be made his footstool. What implication was there for these wavering Hebrews if they kept wavering when, when the Hebrew writers said that? What were the Hebrews in danger of becoming if they wavered? His footstool. His footstool. His enemies. There's a, there's a, there's a veiled thread in that. You don't want to be an enemy of Jesus because... All these things that God has made happen through Jesus and all this history that's happened that exactly happened the way it was prophesied and that Jesus came and did all of this should tell us that there will be no enemy of Jesus who can stand in front of him. I don't want to be a name of one of Jesus' enemies. How do I stay close to him? Well, what if I'm being persecuted? Can I just kind of hide for a little while and pretend I'm not a Christian? You don't want to be Jesus' enemy. Whatever's happening to us is not worse than we can imagine being Jesus in it. So that so that that's one thing um, that, that we can that we can think about and, and, and truly understand on the other side of it just exactly how great this Jesus is who actually freed us from not only the conundrum of our sins but freed our conscience to actually be able to move forward and forget those things and to, to serve him. The final thing he talks about here is the Holy Spirit bear, bears witness, okay? So we all know that the Bible is inspired through the Holy Spirit, and so even as the Hebrew writer is writing, this is the Holy Spirit talking to us. But in verses, uh, in verses 15 through verse uh, through verse 8 uh, through verse 18, I'm on page here. Uh, actually, 11 through verse uh, no, 15 through 18. Excuse me. What is specifically the Holy Spirit's witness? Did you look up where where this where these verses are being quoted from? From Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, who uh, was about 650 years before this, when he actually prophesied and said these words, the Hebrew writer says, "No, this is the Holy Spirit witnessing to us." So just a quick aside here: when we study and we learn our Bibles and we understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through our Bibles, what's happening? The Holy Spirit's bearing witness to us through those words. So it might be Paul that wrote the book of uh, the book of First Corinthians, but the Holy Spirit is witnessing to us through that. In a similar way, that's the language that, that he's using here. So Jeremiah said those words not to the people he talked to in 650 years ago. Yes, he said it to them. The Hebrew writer says he said it to us. And what did he say? This is the covenant that I will make with them. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And he goes on and says he'll plant, he'll plant his word in their hearts and in their minds and he'll, and, and he'll write it there. If you were a Jewish person, when you read that and you knew it was from Jeremiah and you believed Jeremiah was an inspired prophet of God, what should you have concluded according to what the writer is saying here? What should you have concluded about your service that you're conducting in the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices. What should you have concluded when you read this? One day it's going to be over, right? If you were, if you heard Jeremiah himself say that, you, the conclusion should have been, one day this is going to be changed. 
it's going to be over. The writer says this to the Hebrews, you should have recognized it was going to be changed, and it was. Jesus changed it. God's been saying this. He said it through David 1,500 years ago. He said it through Jeremiah 650 years ago. He said it when you heard the gospel and understood that. The remission of sins through Jesus eliminates the need for any other offerings, any other animal sacrifices, anything else you could come up with in the Jewish system. And that's his, that's his conclusion this part. I just thought of an account, yeah, or not just now, but, uh, an accounting uh, an example. Um, we were debtors. That's on the left side of the T account. Mm -hmm. And God balanced the books by offering Jesus as the credit side. And they now balance. And he's big on books. We see that book of Revelation and all, all those uh, uh, types and shadows. He even said the scroll of the book yeah. here. We kind of skipped over that. He said the book here, the yeah. scroll. The, book. The, the books are balanced. Now. The books are balanced. And they're not just balanced for me and for you. Who are they balanced for? They're balanced for The deposit is so great, they're balanced for everybody. Yeah. Everybody who actually comes to claim a part of that, they're, they're balanced for that, that's a That's a great example to, to think about that. All of this, all of this, is connected to his, his main message that he's going to turn and really get back to. His main message is to teach them the theology of the Old Testament and those other pieces. His main message is to teach them that Jesus is greater. And why do they need to understand Jesus is greater? Chapter 2's theme is don't what? Drift away. So when we when we pick up our uh, our Bibles and our, and our lessons and look for Sunday, we're going to read a great big therefore. And that great big therefore is a great big therefore on chapter 1 through chapter 10 right here because he is going to turn the table and say some things that they needed to hear. And even if you weren't as interested in the Jewish background and religion and things as we studied through some of this and some of the technical arguments the Hebrew writer made, here's the things that we really need to hear. Because this is the so what. If you're with Jesus, what does that mean for you? And how do you make it whenever you hit trouble, like persecution that they were making? So that's what we're going to turn to on, on Sunday to actually start that. And then, you know, after that, we're going to hit the great chapter of faith. And uh, Mitch and I are plotting something, so we're, we'll finish our plotting uh, between now and Sunday. And I will reveal it on Sunday as to, to maybe how we get, um, get you a little bit more involved in that great chapter of faith and, uh, and helping us with the class. So a couple of things that we talked about there. So... Uh, don't be scared. Just, just be listening. I'll, we'll have a few, a few things to, uh, a few things to hang out, to hand out there to do that. So we'll, we'll see this turn the corner. And I just say, when you pick up and you read chapter ten of verse nineteen, wow. The so what of all these arguments, the so what of being on Jesus' side is huge compared to whatever they thought they could go back to. And it's huge compared to whatever we think we think we might want to go to instead of being a Christian. If you ever have those doubts, whatever we think we might go that might be more fun than this, when you actually look at what we get because we're Christians that He begins to talk about here, it's amazing. It truly is amazing. But the bottom line is, despite all that, do not drift away in, in looking at that. So that's where we're at. Any uh, the bell just cut it off. I'll still let you have a lot of words. The reflection that came to me is that while we relate more to Jesus to animals, because we are human, he became human, 
and lives through our the same daily life. You understood. And we can, right? Yes. So an animal can. Right. He understood what it was like to serve God as a human yes. and what it was like to live so as a human. can relate to him. But he also understood what it was like to sit at the throne of God yes. and to be creator of the universe. He understood all those things and yet, as we, as we read, he laid all that down, right? He, he gave it all up in order to, to, to obey God's will and to fulfill God's will. And uh, just a beautiful thought. So that, you're, you're exactly right. Okay, well, thanks so much tonight, and, um, and and really study. We'll try to pull some key lessons out of the last uh, half year. I promise you, uh, there'll be great applications because the Hebrew writer makes them. We just have to read them as we go through. Thanks Thank so much. You. <coughs>